Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. We've got a great show for you today. It's part of our expanded content post Supercast launch. We're experimenting with releasing two different conversations on the same topic in one episode. I know folks have asked for a longer extended content. This is a good way of getting at that. Speaking of expanded content, of course, we're launching our initial monthly bonus episode on Monday for subscribers and an additional Q&A slash discussion episode for subscribers as well on Wednesday, where folks who've submitted their AMA questions on the Supercast who've always subscribed can get those answered. So if you'd like to support the show, but also can't get enough of the realignment, click subscribe and support the show. You can find that link at the top of the episode description, or you can go to realignment.supercast.com. Two other things, Saga and I are recording tomorrow's discussion episode later today, so email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com or comment on the Substack linked in the show notes if you'd like to hit any specific topics or themes. We're obviously going to start with discussing the SFDA recall and anything else you can keep in mind, so definitely go subscribe and comment on the Substack to add anything there. On to today's episode. The topic is about something we've hit a lot around, which is our approach to China. First guest, Dr. Aaron Friedberg, just released a new book. It's called Getting China Wrong. His perspective's focused on the failure of what he sees as the approach of engagement towards uh, China and the Chinese Communist Party ever since the end of the Cold War. Our second is actually featuring a return realignment guest was speaking of Zachary Carabao. Last year, he came on to speak about his book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. He recently wrote a New York Times op-ed called Russia or China. The U.S. has to has a choice to make. His answer is that we should focus on Russia as opposed to concentrating on China, because as he discusses during the episode, so many of the things that one argues are constituting a Chinese threat, whether it's invasions of other countries, challenging the international order, disrupting the international economic system, are things that are actually happening from Russia right now. Everything with China he sees as being hypothetical and also in a situation where the lack of engagement would actually further the chances of those nightmare scenarios coming to pass. So once again, two different approaches to a very important topic. Great to have different views here. Of course, hope you all enjoy this episode. And because this is a bit of a, not a discussion or debate episode, but a different perspective one, we'd love to hear what you all think. So email us at realignpod.gmail.com or comment on tomorrow's Substack as well. Closing, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Hope you enjoy this episode. Aaron Freeberg, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you very much. Glad to speak with you. I'm going to start with the most obvious question and ask about the book's title. You write specifically how for the past 30 years, the democracies have gotten China wrong. That's a big question, but at a core level, what would you say would be the central mistake of the approach to the country? I think the uh, the central mistake was underestimating uh, the Chinese Communist Party and its, under, its determination uh, to maintain its exclusive grip on political power. Um, the essence of the strategy of engagement, the belief was that it would lead over time to fundamental changes in the character of the Chinese system. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about that. 
but we overlooked, I think, for, for some time, the fact that the CCP leaders had very different objectives, had no intention of giving up power. Uh, we underestimated them. Could you talk about what you mean by underestimated? Because going back to my, my high school years, for example, I was in high school during 2008, the Beijing Olympics. I don't think a lot of folks in my age cohort would think that we were underestimating China. Lots of talk about the rise of the dragon, Chinese inevitability. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk more about underestimation in your context. I mean, specifically underestimating uh, and misunderstanding the party and its objectives. Um, it is a Leninist party, uh, meaning it is determined to maintain a monopoly of political power, has certain methods of doing that, believes that it has the right to penetrate into every aspect of society and the economy, and ultimately to control uh, the entire population. And our strategy assumed that over time, that system would soften, and the people at the top of it would change their minds, presumably, about what the best way of organizing society and running an economy and running a country would be. Um, But from their perspective, if we had been a little bit more uh, empathic and tried to understand a little better how they viewed the world, that that would have been a disaster. That would have been a defeat. And they had no intention of allowing that to happen. So underestimating not the growth of China's power. uh, You're right. I think people recognized it's growing wealth, it's growing power. I mean, in certain respects, we underestimated the growth of their power as well and the speed with which it's grown. Uh, but it really was misunderstanding the, the party and the nature of the domestic political regime. I want you to focus on the party a bit. I had some audience confusion over the interchanging usage of the CCP versus China. Like, Why in this context is it important to say or to even conceptualize the Chinese Communist Party? Because they said, we don't say that with Russia. We don't say that with, I mean, you'd say the Ba'ath Party maybe with Iraq pre-2003, but not really. Why is it important in this case? Well, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, uh, I think, in our discussion in this country or in the West more generally, uh, to make the distinction between China, the nation, and the Chinese people, and the Chinese Communist Party that, that runs the country. Um, I think for the most part, people would agree, we don't have a problem with China as a country. Uh, We don't have a problem with the Chinese people. The source of our problem is the Chinese Communist Party. So that's that's one reason to be clear about uh, what the source of the problem is. Uh, The other reason is because it highlights the nature of this kind of regime. So sometimes scholars refer to this as a party state Uh, It's a system in which there is a government, a bureaucracy that does the kinds of things that bureaucracies do everywhere. But there's also this party, Communist Party, which controls the government and is the ultimate source of power within that system. So the CCP is uh, in charge and dominates all the functions of government and, as I said, tries to control all aspects of society and the economy. So you can't talk about it, or it's imprecise and inaccurate to talk about it as an as a we might talk about another kind of state uh, where, or de- for example, a democratic state in which you could have one party in power, and then a few years later, you'd have another party in power. And also systems, certainly in the democratic world, where uh, there are laws, there are institutions 
that stand apart from and above any political party. And in the case of China, it's the opposite. The CCP stands apart from and above everything else in the system. And as I said, it it feels that it has the right and the responsibility and the necessity of exerting this control. Yeah. And the helpful way to articulate this, to put a cherry on top for the audience is it wouldn't make any sense to say the Democratic Party, America, because obviously Joe Biden is a Democrat. Democrats control the House and the Senate, but they certainly don't control the Supreme Court. They don't control the majority of state legislatures. There just wouldn't be an analytical saying, referring to the U.S. that way would actually confuse more than clarify within this framework. Yes, I think that's right. And it's a good point. And we would refer to if we wanted to describe our system or that of uh, another democratic country, we'd talk about the structure and functioning of the governmental institutions. In the case of China, we would have to talk about the party and the centrality of the party and its relationship to the institutions of government, because uh, the nature of the system, the essence of the system is the dominance of the party. Something I want to follow up on the last bit on political parties here is your use of the word Leninist. So, you know, one could think of like Stalinist, one can think of Maoist, like you're obviously like this is Leninist. Like what, what is the significance of that specific form of party control versus alternatives? When I use the term Leninism, I'm really referring to uh, a set of practices and procedures and strategies and tactics that Lenin developed for purposes of overthrowing the czarist regime in, in Russia and then also attempted to use for purposes of fomenting world revolution. He wasn't so successful in that. Um, centrality of party, so-called democratic centralism, uh, a really a military uh, style organization where you have the upper ranks and the lower ranks have to follow the orders of the upper ranks. Uh, penetration, again, into every aspect of society. Um, and also the use of the extensive use of propaganda or political warfare uh, to achieve the objectives of the party. In my view, that is the beating heart of the current Chinese system. And really, uh, that uh, kind of mechanism could be applied or used to achieve other kinds of broader objectives. As I said, for, for a time, uh, it was connected to Marxism. So Marxism, Leninism, and aimed to bring about communism. And that's still the way uh, the Chinese Communist Party talks about itself and what it's doing. In fact, I think what's happened and what's become even clearer under Xi Jinping is that you have a Leninist party, which is now pursuing what are really nationalist goals. I don't think the CCP leaders think of themselves as, you know, uh, their, their objective is to create heaven on earth and have communism and uh, total equality. And I, I don't think they believe their objective is to bring about world revolution and have everybody else accept communism. I think they've pretty much discarded the Marxist part of this, but the Leninist part remains. And that's what drives the system. And I think to understand almost every aspect of what goes on in China and also China's external policies, you have to come back and look at that Leninist machine. 
you know, your use of the word nationalism brings about another follow-up question. You were specifically speaking about how we do not have a problem with China or the Chinese people. We have a problem with the Chinese Communist Party. Let's put aside the Chinese people in, in this example, because obviously we, we, we don't and nor, sh- nor should we. But I, I wonder if you're bringing up nationalism, isn't there a world where, let's say you had a more democratic China that still would have nationalist ambitions? I, I would bet not this, this bet's a little out of date by a century, but let's say the Germans pre-1914 had a constitutional monarchy or were a little more democratic. There still would probably be great power competition between them and the United Kingdom, separate from the exact nature of the regime. So how much is this about this specific Leninist model versus there's this rising power that has nationalist region, reasons to challenge the United States? Well, you know, this is a, an ongoing and endless debate among theorists of international relations. And there's one school of thought at one extreme that says the domestic regime really doesn't matter and ideology doesn't matter. And all states basically behave the same in similar circumstances. And they pursue and seek to expand uh, their power and control the areas around them and so on. Uh, And in that view, it really doesn't matter whether China is democratic or ruled by the CCP or or something else. Uh, I don't think that's right. And I think uh, in order to understand why the party proceeds in the way that it does, why it perceives the threats that it perceives, why it's pursuing the particular objectives that it's pursuing and the means by which it's pursuing them, you have to come back and look and look at the regime. You know, there's a there's a debate uh, again. uh, It's one that I think is not going to be resolved anytime soon about whether a democratic China would behave differently. Wouldn't, and this is, I think, what your question is getting at. If, uh, if China were tomorrow a democracy, wouldn't they still want to control Taiwan and wouldn't we still have uh, friction and so on? Um, I think there would be tension and contention. Uh, and it's even possible that there could be conflict. But if you look at the history of the last 200 years, what you see is uh, stable and institutionalized democracies almost invariably are able to resolve their differences without resort to force. Uh, There is the so-called democratic peace. Now, there are problems with that, and in particular problems during a period of transition from authoritarian rule to democratic rule. So uh, it's not like that magically solves all problems. Uh, But democracies tend to get along. Uh, They tend to have a kind of mutual respect, each for the other's system of government. Uh, They tend to be transparent and therefore, uh, I think, are considered by other democracies to be more trustworthy. Uh, They tend to have common values, uh, in particular, an emphasis on the rule of law and the resolution of disputes through peaceful means. And for all of those reasons, uh, they have historically been able to get along, even when they have their differences. You mentioned imperial uh, Germany and its relations with with Britain. And something that was going on at the same time. So even as German power was growing uh, and the way in which German power manifested itself was leading it into conflict with Britain, Britain and the United States were effectively resolving what had been longstanding differences that could conceivably have led to war, but in the end didn't. And I think the commonality of their regimes had a good deal to do with that. Just to add one more thing, um, there's nationalism and then there's nationalism. There are different varieties and types of nationalism, and some of them uh, are, we might say, 
positive and emphasize the the virtues of a particular society, but are not necessarily uh, antagonistic towards other societies. And there are others that are very negative for a variety of reasons, whether it's because uh, their leaders claim uh, that they're superior for cultural, civilizational, or racial reasons. The particular form of nationalism that the Chinese Communist Party has chosen to emphasize and constructed uh, has some disturbing characteristics. Uh, and one part of it is that it emphasizes all of the bad things that were done to China uh, over the so-called century of humiliation, the last hundred years. So starting with the opium wars and then presumably coming to an end or close to an end when the Chinese Communist Party comes to power in 1949. Uh, and that was used, particularly after the Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, to try to mobilize domestic support in an environment in which the Marxist-Leninist Maoist ideology was losing its grip on the imaginations of the Chinese people. Um, Xi Jinping has taken this and really supercharged it. And he talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and the achievement of the so-called China dream. And I think it's pretty clear that that means bringing China, as many people in China would see it, back to its rightful position as the preponderant power in Eastern Eurasia, but also in the long run as the dominant power in the world. So that means that the way in which the CCP defines its objectives, I think, bring it into uh, conflict or the possibility of conflict with democratic societies. One last point is um, I think the regime uses this manufactured ideology, this particular form of nationalism uh, to mobilize support, to deflect the frustrations of the Chinese people outwards at foreign opponents. Uh, and it's part of the reason, I think it's a big part of the reason that the current CCP regime has pursued policies that involve friction and bring it into contention and perhaps even conflict with democratic societies, in particular the United States. I'd love to focus on the democratic societies part, because as has been very frankly illustrated in the war in Ukraine, there are democratic countries, but let's just say that India's approach has not matched the approach uh, by EU countries, has not matched the approach by um, US, UK, Australia, et cetera. How, how should we think of the democratic bloc when it comes to this issue? Well, it's not, it's clearly not universally cohesive. Uh, not all members of it agree on everything. Um, and on particular issues like the invasion of Ukraine, there are all kinds of complicated reasons why at least some other democratic countries have chosen to stand aside. Um, I think, and I guess I should say also that I hope, that we're headed back towards a world in which the democracies seek to cooperate even more closely and see themselves as not only sharing common values, but being faced by common challenges, and in particular, the challenge that's posed by aggressive authoritarian regimes like Russia, and I think also like China. Um, Ukraine is a mixed, you know, it's a mixed story, at least so far. It's true that some democratic countries outside of Europe uh, have chosen to stand aside for their particular reasons. It's true of India, and there are complicated reasons why that's so. It's also true that to a, I think, a surprising degree, 
the democratic countries of Europe have uh, cohered around a pretty tough policy towards Russia. Wouldn't necessarily have predicted that six months ago or four months ago. There's much closer cooperation between the United States and Europe than there perhaps has been in recent times, so transatlantic uh, cooperation. But also, the major East Asian democracies have uh, chosen to align themselves with the democratic countries in Europe in opposing Ukraine. And they're not directly threatened by Russia, but they've uh, participated in embargoes and sanctions. They're providing assistance of various kinds, uh, the, and, it's, and it's mutual. Uh, the president of the EU was in Japan a few weeks ago and said something to the effect that um, we are grateful for your support and we won't forget it, meaning we will also be there for you if you're threatened by your near authoritarian neighbor. So I think we're starting to see some coalescence. And from the point of view of China, of the CCP, that's a bad thing because that collection of democracies is potentially extremely powerful. Uh, it, uh, If you look at the countries you know, in uh, Western Hemisphere and the EU and uh, the major economies of East Asia, those countries together uh, control over 50% of global GDP. So it's, it's a lot of wealth and power. And I think part of the uh, one major theme of CCP strategy has been to try to divide the democracies, um, divide the countries of Europe against one another, divide them from the United States, divide the Asian countries one from another and from the US. Uh, and they would have to be very concerned if, in fact, things move in the other direction. And I think they are concerned about it. And, and that's interesting because it brings to mind a question. Could you give, and it's impossible to know the actual answer to this question, but I'm curious about your thought process. How would you interpret the Chinese's, the CCP's ambiguous relationship towards the war in Ukraine. It seems as if very early on, there's this very clear, you know, Putin and Xi are taking the meeting together. You know, you have Chinese media embedded with Russian forces, but, you know, just there have been cons pretty consistent leaks that are pretty clearly directed at the Chinese refusing to back the Russians economically to the degree the Russians want as the war continues on four months in. How should we understand this very, I mean, ambiguous is a, a euphemism, obviously, but, but but I think it's kind of accurate to what's actually happening. Yes. Uh, first, I think you have to stand back from the recent events and look at the longer term trend in relations between Russia and China. So over the last three decades, really starting in the 1990s and accelerating, uh, those two countries have come into closer and closer alignment. Uh, they cooperate economically. Um, China has money and it has some technology now that Russia needs. Russia has natural resources, energy, minerals, food that China needs. Um, and the two countries, although they're not unified by a common ideology, they share a kind of anti-ideology or they mm -hmm. share an antagonism towards liberal democracy, which they see as a, a threat. So they're, they're kind of drawn together by the belief that they face uh, a common enemy. And they've moved as I said, closer and closer. Um, for a long time, Russian, the Russians have been selling and transferring military technology to China. Uh, they share intelligence. We don't know the full extent to which, for example, they 
cooperate in conducting cyber operations uh, against Western countries. Um, they've con recently conducted large-scale military exercises, both in off uh, European waters and uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and so this declaration by Xi and Putin about this sort of unlimited partnership was the latest step in a progression towards a closer and closer strategic relationship. It's about as close to an alliance, uh, I think, as it's, as it's going to get. So that's the backdrop to it. Um, we don't know what went on in the meeting between Putin and Xi before Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine. Uh, and Chinese sources, of course, deny that they had any foreknowledge of what was going to happen. Uh, I'm skeptical of that, although I don't have any proof uh, that, that there was discussion. My guess would be that they did talk about it, and uh, Xi Jinping and his advisors uh, probably made the mistake of believing what Putin and his advisors believed and told them, which was that this was going to be a very quick conflict and would be over in a short period of time, and Russia would win. And from a Chinese perspective, I think that would have been great. Uh, it would have increased the U.S. focus on Europe and drawn it away from the Pacific. Um, it would have had a number of beneficial strategic effects. And of course, it hasn't worked out that way. Uh, and so China has been faced with a, with a dilemma. It's clear that they have chosen to side with Russia. It's sort of they claim neutrality, but it's neutrality that in effect supports the Russian position from you know point of view of propaganda, diplomacy. You know, they've, they've tried to block uh, some resolutions that might have proceeded in the UN. Um, they echo Russia's propaganda. Uh, they blame NATO and the United States for the conflict. For a while, they were spreading Russian disinformation about bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Um, so they've they've supported uh, the Russian position in this way. And by the way, in doing so, they've contradicted what they've always claimed was one of the central principles of their diplomacy, namely a respect for, for sovereignty. So they've, they've sort of looked away at one country invading and seeking to annex uh, another, but they're, they're flexible in that way. However, uh, what they're worried about is the possibility of so-called secondary sanctions. Um, the United States, Europeans as well, have imposed these sanctions on Russia and have threatened to impose sanctions on other countries that violate those sanctions. And at least so far, the Chinese have been pretty careful about that. I don't think they want to get crosswise with us. They don't want to have us uh, impose sanctions on them. But we'll see what happens as the conflict grinds on. I think they're going to find ways to support Russia which get around the sanctions in various ways. Um, what's clear is that from a strategic perspective, China, China's leaders feel they can't distance themselves from Russia. They can't cut Russia loose. And uh, as recently as a few weeks ago, Russian commentators, this is not something leaders have said, but fairly authoritative figures in their system have said, in effect, you guys are pressuring us to help you defeat our closest friend. And if we did that, as soon as you succeeded, you would turn all of your attention and energy on us. And we're just not going to do that. So yes, it's a, it's a touchy position for them to be in. Uh, but they're 
effectively all in with Russia. And we'll see how far that goes. Uh, they're walking a tightrope now, but it's clear who they're who they're rooting for. You know, I want to pull a bit on the articulation you just gave of the Chinese objective could have could have could have been the U.S. gets distracted, pulled away from the Asia Pacific, is focused on Europe. I was speaking with um, Republican um, Senate staffers around this issue. They think that that describes the status quo. They think that we actually are distracted. And this is driving part of the debates around, around aid and the focus on Taiwan. So to what degree do you think our policy towards Ukraine, aid, intelligence support, et cetera, is taking away from our ability to handle or basically maintain the status quo in Asia? In the short run, there's no doubt that it's deflected energy and attention and resources. Uh, in my view, we didn't have a real choice. Uh, I don't think we could have chosen to stand aside and let Russia succeed in, U in Ukraine. And I don't think we can afford to do that now. Um, in my view, the only really acceptable outcome, a desirable outcome in any case, would be a Russian defeat, the question of whether that can be accomplished. But I'm basically supportive of what, uh, what the Biden administration has been doing. Um, the question is, what's going to happen in the longer run? And it is possible that uh, these shifts in attention and resources uh, could continue and that that could come at the, at the expense of our efforts to deal with China. Um, on the other hand, if we uh, succeed in helping the Ukrainians uh, defeat the Russians, and even to this point, the damage that they've inflicted on Russia has diminished Russian power and made it less of a long-term threat even than it, than it was already. So in the long run, that should help us deal, uh, divert more of our resources to Asia. The uh, Russian aggression has also uh, frightened the Europeans sufficiently that they've gotten much more serious, many of them, about their own defense, particularly Germany, which says it's going to increase defense spending to 2% of GDP, uh, which would make it one of the biggest spenders in, in the world. Uh, Sweden and Finland want to join, and those are serious military powers. So I think the results of this in the longer run are going to be increased European efforts, diminished Russian power, and a more favorable balance uh, in Europe. One other thing to say, though, is that um, resources are finite, of course, and in the short run, at least they're fixed. So if you're taking something from one place and putting it somewhere else, you're diminishing what you have in, in the other domain. Uh, in my view, this, uh, these events should be the stimulus for uh, a significant increase in defense spending, a long-term increase in defense spending. Um, I'm kind of disappointed that the Biden administration hasn't taken this opportunity basically to go to Congress and say, we need to uh, we need to increase defense spending over the long run to you know four percent of GDP instead of you know two or three percent, which is where we've been. If we did that, we, the pie would be bigger, and we would be in a better position to deal with contingencies both in Europe and in Asia. I think in the long run we're going to have to do that, but we haven't gotten there yet. 
you know, it's it's interesting. I I want to get to the defense budget thing in a second, but I want to spend a second on this finite resources idea because this was this was another topic that came up um, with my Republican um, staff friends. They they listen to a lot of Bridge Colby. Bridges come on the show, engage with a lot, and something Bridges focused on is the fact that the javelin stock has been you know severely depleted. But my perspective is basically. Well, that suggests that javelins are relevant to a Taiwan conflict in a way that I don't think they are. Um, the issue isn't going to be Chinese tanks crossing 50 miles. It's going to be ships and, and planes crossing 50 nautical miles. So to what degree do you think there there is an actual trade-off between the situation? Because I think the last thing I'll add is that's sort of like saying in World War II, at least, well, we're putting all our aircraft carriers in the Pacific and not in the North Atlantic, as if you know, the, the, those are exactly the same approaches you would take in both situations, which I don't think that was true. So how, how would you think about this, where we're putting specific types of resources? Well, uh, Europe is primarily a land theater with air being very important and naval power supporting it. Um, the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific is much more a, a maritime theater with air support and a more limited role for ground forces. So it's not like the two are exactly comparable. Um, again, I don't. I, I understand why people are concerned about our getting deflected from, from uh, the Indo-Pacific and from the focus on China. And I've, for quite a long time, I've been arguing that this was something that we needed to be more concerned about and needed to pay more attention to and devote more resources to. So, you know, I yield to no one in my desire to have us focus on, on that problem. Uh, but I think the notion that, you know, we have to choose one or the other uh, is a false binary, false trade-offs. Uh, we can do more overall as we've done in the past, and I think we're going to have to do in the future. And as I said, we can also, I hope, rely more than we've been able to do in the past on our allies because they feel more threatened. And we see this in Asia, where Japan is much more serious about its defense than it was 10 or 15 years ago, Australia, uh, Korea as well. Uh, and we see it in Europe too. So I don't think we can say this theater matters and this one doesn't matter anymore, or, uh, you know, we're going to leave it to our friends. And if they don't pull their socks up, then it's their problem. Uh, we, we can't afford to do that. And we don't need to do it. Uh, we need to increase our resources devoted to defense. We need to continue to press our allies to do the same. And we need to work closely together. So there's a division of labor. Um, one other thing, uh, you know, this we're learning a lot from this war. You mentioned the javelins. And one of the things we're learning, which I think is really important or being reminded of, is that even a relatively limited but high-intensity conventional conflict eats up munitions at an extraordinary rate. And we don't have uh, stockpiles, I think, sufficient to continue to fight a conflict that might drag on for many months or even years. Our planning, I, I believe, has been based on the assumption that conflict would be over relatively quickly. And there's some reason to be concerned that that would not be the case. I'm thinking here of a contingency involving China and Taiwan. I think in addition to what we're going to need to spend on additional platforms, ships, planes, and weapons, missiles, and so on, we're also going to have to invest more in our defense industrial base. 
and improve our ability to mobilize so that we can, if we have to, conduct a protracted conflict. That's not something that we've thought seriously about for decades. And I, I want to push you a bit on the defense spending side from an audience advocacy perspective, because if, if you're just if you if you're if you're just a normal listener and like not engaged in like defense policy, foreign policy debates, the the idea that the problem for our national security is that we're not spending enough. This is going to feel a little insane. You know, you, you've, you've heard the number. We spend more than eight to 10, you know, top other defense spender, spenders combined. We just wrapped, um, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Like how, how can't this be? But let's put aside the idea of like decreasing. Let's put, let's put aside a peace dividend for a second. Not that we have quite peace right now, but you, you kind of get what I'm getting at there. Why isn't this a matter of saying, well, we were investing all this money in counterinsurgency and MRAPs and all these specific Afghan, Iraqi, Middle Eastern type things. Why can't we shift that to, let's say, land to sea missiles? Like, Why does this require us to increase the total amount rather than shifting around the very expensive status quo? Well, I think it has to be both. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is true that we've over the last two decades, devoted uh, enormous resources to fighting these conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're just very different from uh, high-intensity conventional war with China or with Russia. Uh, we also have to increase our, our, our nuclear forces, I think, be- and modernize them because China is building up its nuclear forces rapidly and Russia invests a lot uh, in nuclear capabilities as well. Um, so we have to both increase the total and shift some of what we were expending on these other conflicts towards better preparations to deal with what are clearly the major threats now. Um, you know, these numbers, uh, yeah, we spend more than however many combined, but they're really not very meaningful. Uh, and for one thing, uh, China in particular has been engaged in a three-decade-long substantial broad-based buildup of its military capabilities that's been propelled by its very rapid economic growth. It's really a, an accumulation of military power uh, that doesn't have a, a historical precedent, in my view. The amounts that they've expended and the increases in their capabilities over the last three decades are really dramatic, um, including investments in new kinds of weapons and new concepts of operations, which are designed to target specifically the vulnerabilities that our systems have. So we need to respond to that. The other point is, and people have have pointed this out, we are still a global military power. We think of ourselves as having responsibilities and commitments in various parts of the world, Europe, still to some degree in the Middle East, as well as Asia. China has the luxury of focusing all of its energy and attention and resources on us. Moreover, if we were ever to fight a war with China, we would be fighting in their backyard, which means we have to expend a lot on logistics uh, and and bases and moving capabilities uh, to bring them to bear uh, in in the Western Pacific. So we would be playing an away game, as military people sometimes say. Uh, So these comparisons of, of overall budgets are are not very meaningful. I guess the last thing I would say just on that issue is I don't think we actually know exactly how much China is spending on its military. Um, the estimates, they issue figures. I don't think anybody really takes them, takes them at face value. 
Um, but they're spending on a lot of things that may not be included in the normal, what we would think of as normal military budgets, which are directed at uh, in, enhancing the security of the nation and the regime as they see it. Uh, I think they're doing much more than we've given them credit for doing. Uh, whether they'll be able to do it at the same pace as their economy slows down, I don't know. But there's absolutely no doubt that they've grown to a point where they now pose a, a serious challenge to us. I just got back from a, a visit to Indo-PACOM in, in Honolulu last week. And boy, the one thing I took away from that was that everybody from top to bottom uh, is very focused on what they see as a growing threat from China. Uh, they take it very seriously, and they are concerned that we might be engaged in a conflict in the relatively near term. And I've been going out there and talking to people for quite a long time, and I've never come away with the sense mm. of concern, I won't say alarm, but uh, that I got from talking to people this time around. You know, it's interesting. I have, I have my own answer to the question of what we're getting wrong on China in the sense that I, I used to work at PBS. So I worked in a very, you know, typical, you know, typical PBS space. Whenever we would do segments or coverage of China, we would use the, just the, the exhausting cliche by this point of, you know, the U S like we don't like plan for the long term. We're so short-sighted, the Chinese, it gets kind of like Orientalist very quickly, which is always funny on a different level. The Chinese are, you know, you know, we're playing, you know, checkers, they're playing chess, blah, 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 throwing a go reference there. But but it seems that ever since basically probably Xi's speech um, at the World Economic Forum in 2017, so when you had Trump's election, you had the post-Brexit period, there genuinely was this moment of disruption where people were looking for some type of stabilizing counterweight, where Xi says, China believes in this, 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 and that. And it was received, it was received very, very, very positively. But ever since then, and whether or not that was actually true, that was a smart political move relative to the actual moment. But it seems like ever since then, whether it's Uyghur issues, whether it's the Hong Kong crackdown, whether it's the very like, lack of transparent like, COVID response aligning with Russia and the way it has, it seems like every other calculation has been the wrong calculation relative to the objectives that you set out at the start of the episode. So can you just explain I, I, I'm just fascinated by the, by this question of like the cliche of the Chinese of the CCP being long termist. Yet none of the decisions they've made making any sense within a long term perspective, at least from my telling. So how, how would you think of this dilemma? Well, um, let me start at the end and then maybe go back to the beginning. Um, there is a tendency, and there has been a tendency, even as people have become increasingly concerned about what China is doing to jump to the conclusion that because we see it as uh, offensive or aggressive and we believe it's a mistake, it must necessarily be a mistake. But for the most part, uh, the jury is out. You know, it's still too early to say uh, if they push and are aggressive and the end result of that is to stimulate the kind of resistance and cooperation that I mentioned earlier, then, yeah, it's going to look like it was a mistake. But it's not clear that that's what's going to happen. Uh, and the goal, I think, for them is to make sure or try to make sure that it doesn't. Now, that said, I do think that they are um, they've gotten ahead of themselves. And let me let me just back up. Um, you mentioned the, the Davos speech. One of the issues that I try to address in the book, there are really sort of two puzzles for me. 
One is, um, why did we pursue this strategy of engagement for as long as we did? You know, where did it come from and why did we stick with it as long as, it did, as we did? Um, and another question is, uh, why did it start to change or why did support for that policy start to erode when and how it did? Um, and I think <clears throat> the second question is what you're getting at. Um, and future historians will no doubt argue about, you know, when did this really start to happen? Um, I think the shifts in Chinese policy that have become increasingly evident and worrisome predate Xi Jinping. They actually mm -hmm. start in the latter stages of Hu Jintao's uh, rule, and many of them began to become clearer. You mentioned 2008, uh, the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, and the perception on the part of people in Beijing that the United States and the West was now in a period of accelerating relative decline. And China, which of course was growing at an unbelievable rate, especially after it got into the World Trade Organization, was emerging now and had the opportunity now to pursue its own objectives more openly and more and more aggressively. But there's no doubt that since Xi Jinping came into power at the end of 2012, start of 2013, all of these tendencies have accelerated. And <clears throat> it's taken a while, but increasingly people, not only in the United States, but in other democratic countries have gotten alarmed. Um, you know, concern about what China is doing economically, long history of you know, complaints and concerns about Chinese industrial subsidies and intellectual property theft. And it was kind of accumulating. Um, 2015, uh, Chinese government publishes a plan in this Made in China 2025 plan that spells out that in 10 years, their goal is to take over essentially all or most of the domestic Chinese market for a variety of products, which they're at that point still importing from Western countries. And in addition to capture large portions of the global market for those same products. And I think that really brought people up short. It was, it was saying the quiet part out loud and the beginning, I think of a lot of concern in Europe particularly, but also here about economics really was that. Um, on the military front, uh, you know, there's, again, a, a history of things that have happened that have gotten the attention of some people in the United States. But I would date the acceleration of this concern to 2014, when China begins to build these artificial islands in the South China Sea, uh, and then militarizes them, even though Xi Jinping promised that they weren't going to do that. Uh, and then on the political side, um, Hong Kong, the crackdown in Hong Kong, which also comes in 2014 and then again more recently, um, growing awareness of what was happening to the Uyghurs, which really, I think it's like 2017, 2018, 2019, this begins to come to light. Um, one other thing which I think accelerated the uh, deteriorating perception of China in the eyes of people across the democratic world was their handling of the COVID pandemic um, and the kind of bullying, wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, the attempts to isolate and punish countries that criticized China's handling of, of the pandemic, the early stages of it, 
or even in the case of Australia, called for an objective investigation of, of the causes. And since then, China has been, you know, stopped buying Australian wine and beef and so on, really tried to hurt uh, the Australian economy. Uh, you look at public opinion polls and the uh, portion of uh, those polled who express a negative view of China just shoots up in every case in 2020 and 2021. I think Pew had polls both in Europe, Asia, and in the United States, and they show the same trend. So it's an accumulation of things. So why are they doing this? Why are they pushing as hard as they are? Um, and is it a mistake for them to have done so? Um, I hope in the long run, it will prove to be a mistake that if they could just have kept it quiet uh, and proceeded in the way that they had been proceeding, uh, perhaps they would have gotten closer to where they want to be and would have been in a better position then to kind of pull off the mask and begin pushing people around and behaving aggressively. They started early, I think, because their assessment of the trends suggested to them that it was advantageous. Uh, it was an advantageous time to do it. And unfortunately, I think there is still that belief the West is in decline. The United States is in decline. Xi Jinping has said, you know, the West is declining and the East, meaning China, is rising. I think they genuinely believe that, that our system doesn't work uh, and is breaking down, whereas their system supposedly is functioning and handling problems better. I mean, that doesn't look so good now with the, with the zero COVID policy. So it's partly their reading of, of the trends. I think there may also be another side to that, which is um, a sense that it was inevitable that as they grew stronger, others would seek to hold them down. And when that happened, they would have no choice but to push ahead. So they interpreted things like the pivot under the Obama administration in 2011 and uh, you know, Trump's more aggressive posture towards China on trade issues, not as a response to anything they had done, certainly not anything they'd done wrong, but the inevitable sort of lashing out of a jealous declining America and declining West. Uh, and it just confirmed all of their suspicions and further justified their the acceleration of their policies. In some respects, um, I think they may have uh, believed that they had a window and that was the reason why they had to accelerate. So they'd gotten strong uh, for a long time. There was a diminished reaction to their growing strength. And that's part of the puzzle that I'm examining in the book. And then there began to be a response, which again, they interpreted as a reaction to their success. And they realized that they had to push harder to get where they wanted to go before the West cohered and blocked them and prevented them. And I think that's where they are now. They believe eventually they're going to get there. They believe we're trying to stop them. We're doing everything we can to try to stop them. Therefore, they have to keep pushing ahead. So from where they sit, it's not a mistake. It's a necessity. You know, and you were, you were 
rhetorically raising the question of why did we pursue the policy of engagement for so long? And just my immediate reaction answer, and this is likely the answer that a lot of folks in the audience will feel is because the alternative sounds terrible. Um, and, and you said a useful phrase earlier, where you said that, you know, separating your hope from your analysis and the engagement side, especially at a non-expert level would purely be, well, I'd rather engage with China than be in a potential hot war, be in serious escalatory competition. What, what is your response to that? Because I feel like for so many people, now that we're clearly in the space where analytically engagement did not work, tell us how this ends then. Well, let me, before I do that, uh, let me respond to the, to the earlier part of your question. Um, there's a tendency, I think, on the part of people who uh, are retrospectively defending the policy of engagement, and in many cases, the people who are retrospectively defending it basically want to see it continued. There's a tendency for people to say uh, there was no other choice, or the only other choice was to isolate them and try to hold them down, and that would have just made them more aggressive and angrier and so on. Um, I don't think those were the only two choices. And by the way, and I make this point in the book, I don't think engagement in the ways that it was pursued initially was a blunder. You know, I don't think it was the result of naivete or, or just greed, although those did play a role. Um, it was a gamble. Uh, and we were hoping that things would go in a certain direction. The problem and where I would fault uh, policymakers and more broadly, I think, democratic societies as a whole, is that we kept doubling down on that bet, even as the evidence accumulated that it was not paying off. If we had been paying closer attention, I think we could have responded, begun to respond in more forceful ways that might have deflected uh, the regime from pursuing the policies that they were pursuing. But even if it hadn't, would have left us in a stronger position than we find ourselves now. Because engagement, as we're, as we're realizing, has had significant downsides for us. Uh, the way in which we've allowed China to steal intellectual property, uh, to pursue uh, non-market economic policies, and then hide behind their membership in the WTO um, and prevent us from developing or applying uh, effective countermeasures those have had real consequences. It's not like it was benign. Um, so there was something in between. And I think if we had been a little bit more alert and been able to modulate our policies, we could have avoided getting into quite the deep hole that I think we're in now. That's dangerous, uh, both because it, we're at something of a disadvantage and also because it requires us uh, to ramp up quickly uh, and that may, you know, increase the risks of conflict. Even though I think it's something that we that we have to do. Um, you asked, how does this end? Um, of course, I don't know. And let me let me put a corrective. Okay. Not how does this end? Where does this lead? Okay. I, I think is more people are thinking then. All right. I think it leads to an increasingly open and intense rivalry between China and the United States, China, and many of the Western democracies more, more generally. Uh, and that means an accelerating military competition. We see that diplomatic competition with both sides trying to line up uh, support. <coughs> and 
uh, a separation, not entire, uh, not complete, but uh, significant separation and disentanglement of the economies of, of the two sides. Um, and we're going to be in a period that is going to more closely resemble the Cold War and people, the, the old Cold War, the Soviet Union, not in every respect. We're not going to be as totally uh, separated from China as we were from the Soviet Union. Uh, that's actually a problem for us because we've allowed uh, China, and to a certain extent, we allowed Russia to become embedded in our societies and economies in ways that advantaged them and put us at a disadvantage, allowed them to influence um, politics in some cases, to extract economic benefits and so on. Um, so we start, it's, you know, we started the Cold War with the Soviets on one side of the Iron Curtain and us and our friends on the other. The Soviets didn't want to be in, included in our system and they, they uh, separated themselves from it. We start this in a very different position where they are deeply entangled with us. And I think in large measure, that's, that's a dis disadvantage and we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to address it. I see this as unfolding probably in, in stages. Um, from where I sit, the purpose of our policy now should be, uh, we've, I think, given up on the idea that we can transform China, certainly by, we can't do it by being nice to them. Um, so what then is our objective? I think it's defensive. We have to fend off their efforts to change uh, the world in ways that are inimical to our interests and to our values. Um, we're probably going to have to be in an intensified period of tension and, and increased risk of conflict. Uh, my hope would be that that would stabilize. Um, I believe that what we're, we need to try to do now is to block and uh, fend off and defeat the thrust of uh, the CCP's current policies. And it's only once we've done that, I think, that there's any chance that the CCP leadership might begin to take uh, another look at what it's doing and uh, perhaps adopt policies which are more congenial to us. Um, but that's not going to happen as long as they think they're winning. And unfortunately, I think they believe that now we have to persuade them otherwise. We have to demonstrate to them that both the external policies that they're pursuing and the internal policies that they're following uh, are dead ends and won't work. We can't do that or we can't hope to succeed in that if we're continuing to do things that help them grow and become more powerful. Yeah, I just want to close by saying I, I really appreciate your articulation of the idea around engagement being a gamble because I think what your answer captures is also the fact that and I think when, when critics reduce this to greedy, you know, Western elites in the 1990s, actually, if you, if you were to sit down, if we were to travel back in time, talk to, let's just say a generic listener and articulate like what engagement was and what the benefits would be, I think a lot of people would take that gamble too. That sounds pretty great in the 1990s, and it underscores the fact that whatever policy comes next has to also be able to intersect with the underlying political dynamic, which right. engagement at least into, and obviously the, the economic side of this is much more complicated. So you could insert like the trade policy side of engagement was contentious much quicker, especially with the WTO. But on a political, diplomatic, military side, up until the 2010s, engagement was still clearly 
at, at, at I think a deep domestic level, the the more politically sustainable um, approach. And that explains partially why things went the way they went. So um, th- this has been this has been really great. Um, thank you so much. Could you just shout out the book's title? We'll have it available in our online bookstore and everything. But always good when the author shouts it out themselves. Okay, the title of the book is Getting China Wrong, and you can sort of see it behind me. Uh, and it should be available as a Monday. Good show. Thank you so much for joining us on The Realignment. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Zachary Carabao, welcome back to The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me once again. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to chat with you. We uh, spoke with you last this time last year about when uh, Inside Money came out. And uh, it's great to have a, a guest back on to talk about something we hit a bit on, which is the US-China relationship. But you just had a piece out in the New York Times that I think took a really interesting approach to a question we've been really interested in. You're, you're basically arguing that the US has to choose between Russia and China, Europe and Asia. A lot of folks Bridge Colby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, have made this argument, but you're taking it the opposite direction. I've typically seen, I've seen a lot of China hawks say, we have to choose, let's choose China. Well, if you just to like lay out your position, because it goes a different way than usual. Right. So I think a lot of what uh, China hawks are focused on is what China can potentially do. And look, these are massively contentious issues. People are very heated about them. I feel sometimes when I'm banging the drum, which I have been for years, that I don't think a new Cold War with China is either desirable or necessary. And even if you don't use the patois of Cold War, the whole idea that we should be positioning our 21st century security and national strategy based on the perception that China represents a real and present danger, an existential threat. I, just, I simply think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistaken approach. I think it's a framework that uh, is increasingly becoming conventional wisdom and settled in by, by both Democrats and Republicans. It's probably one of the few things that is bipartisan in the United States today. Uh, but in my view, that doesn't make it right. And uh, I think what what Russia's invasion of Ukraine coming on the heels of Russia's earlier invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the Crimea and the Donbass, Russia's support of complicity in invasion of Syria and destruction of Syrian cities, its invasion of uh, Georgia in 2007, its destruction of Grozny, its kind of repeated stated belief that the international system as it's drawn literally borders is illegitimate and or designed to keep Russia down. You know, Russia is a, is a country that is behaving in ways in action that are hugely destructive. I think most of what is oriented about China is what China might do. Um, and before everyone who cares about this stuff starts going, hey, wait a minute, what about the the islands in the South China Sea? And what about its its territorial aggressions, uh, mostly in the sea to, to Vietnam or to the Philippines? Or what about its suppression of the Uyghurs in Chongqing? What about its stated belief in the recreation of a middle kingdom? What about Taiwan? All those things, right? Um, I still think most of that is in the realm of what we perceive China might do, uh, whatever its desire to have hegemony slash predominance in East Asia in the seas, 
you know, we can get into the moral equivalency argument of how different is that than what the United States has demanded in the Caribbean. And uh, I think in general, we should take from Russia's behavior as well as the fact that it, you know, I don't know that anything would particularly stop Putin from invading Poland or Lithuania or Estonia other than force against him. So, like that's a real challenge to an international order. China becoming a really powerful country that we don't like, whose internal domestic system we abhor, does not in my mind constitute a proximate threat to our way of life. And we should think really seriously before we embrace this conventional wisdom that most people have embraced. You know, um, you uh, read my mind when I was about to bring up uh, 2014, um, artificial islands, all those things. You basically, you, you addressed that. And I want to take a bit of a level bigger, which is basically this idea that Russia isn't just a hypothetical threat. It's actually happening. A lot of the China discussion is hypothetical. What I wonder about though is if we had this conversation, let's say in 2013, in terms of the, the initial taking of Crimea, right before it happened. And if we had this conversation in, let's say, October of 2021, one could also say all these things that Russia could do are hypothetical. It's all hypothetical. And a lot of folks have critiqued US, NATO, European policy towards Russia, basically from October 2021 on, as not effectively establishing a deterrent to, to a result in basically the status quo in the country. So can you just engage with that idea, which is basically like, you're correct that it hasn't happened yet. There is no invasion of Taiwan yet. But I think what Asia firsters, to coin a term, would probably say is we're looking to deter that from happening. And that's what our focus is based on. You're saying it's hypothetical, but part of what would make that actually be real is China perceiving that they have the ability to take it in the first place. So that's a lot there, but we'd love to hear your response. Right. So let's go... Uh, the hardest thing first and then go backwards, which is Taiwan and Taiwan as a clear goal for the Chinese government to unify with the mainland, maybe in a Hong Kong like arrangement. Although, as we can see now, um, that Hong Kong arrangement is becoming increasingly not really two countries, one uh, two systems, one country, but increasingly, you know, one system, one country. Um, so the problem with Taiwan is that it is indeed in international law, not a country. Uh, I mean, it, it acts like a country, it talks like a country, we sort of relate to it as a country, except for the fact that there's no diplomatic relations and it's not a country. I mean, I'm not talking about whether it should be, I'm just saying it happens not to be because that issue has been can kicked down the proverbial road for decades. and. You know, that alone makes it somewhat anomalous in international affairs, right? It's it's like contested territory, but it's not contested territory. And it's why it's so challenging to kind of assess what you're supposed to do about it. And it's also challenging in that because of that reality and because the United States has repeatedly said what are may at the end of the day be completely contrary things, which is on the one hand, we'll protect Taiwan's territorial integrity. And on the other hand, we recognize that it's part of China, right? That's what, that's what we say. Uh, I'm not claiming that that's an easy reality, but I am claiming that it is a very particular reality. Um, and yeah, there are plenty of people who make the China hawk argument that sometime between now and 2030 is like the window of opportunity for 
for Beijing to take military action against Taiwan for all sorts of, sort of demographic and, and military reasons. And that, those arguments are absolutely to be analyzed and paid attention to. I'm not being dismissive of them. Uh, so you got Taiwan on the one hand. Uh, you know, should the, is Taiwan the equivalent of Ukraine, right? Uh, I guess if Ukraine had not been recognized as sovereign territory, um, or if Taiwan had been recognized as sovereign territory, then it would be very similar to Ukraine in the sense of you had one powerful state laying kind of historic claim to another sovereign state, uh, or in the mind of Russia, a powerful state laying claim to a state that it never treated as legitimate, although Russia did recognize Ukraine as an independent country. Uh, in terms of everything in October of 2021 or early 2014 was hypothetical about Russia and the whole backwards argument of, you know, to what degree did NATO plan for a contingency and in planning for that contingency, vastly raised the likelihood of that happening, meaning all these countries that joined NATO in, in the 1990s that had been part of or peripheral to the Soviet Union do so because they're, you know, they're worried about Russian revanchism, which is exactly what's happened. The argument against it is that it happened in part because you created this cordon, security cordon surrounding Russia, and most countries do actually feel threatened when a bunch of countries around them are armed militarily against them. Um, one, we're in the situation we're in, but the and therefore you can't. I mean, that may be true, but that still doesn't justify the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of of Ukraine. And two, maybe one of the lessons of that is don't do the same thing with China. You know, meaning don't. Don't build up China into more of an enemy than it already might be, because doing so vastly raises the possibility that it becomes exactly the enemy that you're scared and worried that it become. Like our actions have an effect. They're not, you know, we're not responsible for what Chinese Communist Party officials write about the world or think about the world, but we certainly can be responsible as we were with NATO expansion. And there were a lot of voices in the 1990s, centrist you know, not not appeasement, not uh, American isolationists, and in Europe as well, saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't expand NATO, maybe NATO's purpose, which was to contain a more clearly aggressive Soviet Union, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, NATO's purpose has been served, right? It's time to wind down an alliance that was built for a particular time, and that particular time has ended, ended with a victory, by the way. Um, that might have been a better course of action. Certainly in retrospect, it, it looks increasingly like it would have been a better course of action. We should take some lesson from that in looking at China. You know, if we continually act like everything that China does to be a great power, many of which, much of which is not different than what we and other great powers have done, you know, flex our muscle, build up a robust Navy, build up a robust military, make sure they can't be attacked by cyber and or conventional and or other means, create a nuclear arsenal. You know, these are all card-carrying actions that great powers do, I suppose we could have an anti-great power foreign policy, like every, and, and not, no one but us, which is kind of what we're doing with China. Um, Wait, why, why, think, actually, to push you on it, though, I actually think we can. I mean, for example, I, I, I get what you're saying at a moral level in terms of what the United States has done, the Monroe Doctrine, sphere of influence, all the you know 19th century stuff. But the logical endpoint of that is 
you know, the U.S. committed massive territorial genocide against Native Americans. Does that mean that in the face of the 21st century, we're supposed to, and by the way, neither you nor I were alive when that happened, um, are, are we supposed to just basically say, well, you know, this thing happened 300 years ago. I, I, my, my problem with that argument is I agree with it morally. I don't like the implications of it because it doesn't actually help you sort through the decision in front of you. If we were proposing a third Monroe Doctrine, well, that would be a really valid debate right now. But I just don't know what us saying we've done these things in the past within the post, like outside the lifetimes of everyone involved. How, how, how do you think that's useful? Well, one, I think it's useful in that um, owning up to your own flawed humanity is, is almost always a better starting point than pure lecturing on moral grounds. I mean, no self-awareness and or hypocrisy are, are the most egregious weaknesses in making moral arguments, right? And uh, so I think there too, like at a, almost at a pragmatic level, if, if you're going to put human rights as the centerpiece of your China policy, uh, you, you had better come from a more morally grounded place, which requires, I think, owning up to your own past, not apologetically per se, just acknowledging uh that our stance is, is is in part based on our own history you know it's not in spite of it it's not saying we're better so i think there's a a human rights policy requires a, a an internal moral clarity to be externally effective so that's number one two i don't happen to agree that foreign policy should ground itself in human rights because it leads to um either endless intervention meaning at the end of the day there's only so much you can do to coerce and force another group to behave in ways morally that you think they should. And maybe if, even if they objectively should, you know, you're left with various levers of force, uh, you know, invasion and destruction being the most intense and economic uh, sanctions being in the middle. And I guess disengagement being a form of coercion, right. Or non-engagement. Um, whether those work is a whole other, you know, as you know, the, the, the legacy of forcing other societies to be different morally is ambiguous at best and, and pretty dismal at worst. You know, you can, you can stop people from killing people right now. Um, you know, we, I guess you could have gone into Rwanda in 1994 and if you'd gone in like right at the right time. Um, but it's very hard to, you know, get people to behave differently. I mean, yes, we stopped at the very end, uh, Serbian aggression against Bosnia, but that was also part of a, you know, part of its own history. And I guess we'll see what happens in a hundred years. So again, I think, I think, I think human rights as a, as a cornerstone, uh, is, is likely to be both unsuccessful and maybe counterproductive, uh, and, you know, we're not, unless we're going to be in the role of disengaging from everyone who does horrific things, in which case there's a lot of places in the world in our lifetimes that we would be less engaged with, that we are more engaged with. Uh, I think that's not where you start from a perspective of you got to pick your, you got to, you got to respect the limitations of your power, frankly. Um, you know, at, at times it's interesting, like, you know, countries that don't have a large military that can't flex it. Uh, do have very strong moral stances and have to figure out what to do, 
are left with a different kind of matrix of choices, right? So Norway isn't going to invade China because it is disapproving of how the Uyghurs are being treated. It, it has to think through what do we do with that moral conundrum with pragmatic and realist needs in a much more, I think, sophisticated way because they don't have the recourse to coercion the way we think we do. I'm also arguing that we don't actually have the recourse to coercion when it comes to a country like China, which is immensely powerful, very large, and I don't think susceptible to the kind of coercion that America has lazily gotten used to since 1945. You know, we, we couldn't do that before 1945 either. It's This is why I think your perspective is so interesting, because I think you're getting at the tensions here. What I would say, though, is I speak to a lot of China hawks who are taking the opposite position that you're taking. Once again, like the the Bridge Colbys, um, a lot of sort of realists of, of of the world, they have no interest in human rights. Um, and the side of the debate, and once again, like I, I haven't been in these debates as long as you have, obviously, but I do. I see very few of any serious folks at the tension point areas actually elevating human rights to the core part of the relationship. Like this is once again why I think your point around like endless intervention becomes a problem. This whole like regime change, liberal democracy rhetoric wasn't just sort of. There's obviously the debate around like engagement versus like a, a aggression as an effective thing, but even before that debate happened, 2001 to 2008 basically discredited um, the regime change aspect. So the folks I see who are engaging the most hawkishly on China, who are probably doing the things that you probably are most um, concerned about, the most saber rattling, the most like what's put like reclarify the relationship with Taiwan. They're saying, oh, I don't give a crap about human rights. Um, they will explicitly save us off the record. I care about Taiwan because China's going to use that to essentially destroy the United States' economic position around the globe. They're going to intervene in Taiwan and use that to like affect our allies. It's very interestingly pragmatic. So right. let's put the human rights thing aside. I'd like you to respond to them who say, like, Zach, you're right. We agree on every other issue, probably, except for this one. So like respond to the pragmatists. Right. So the pragmatists are also operating out of a realist framework that's probably most acutely articulated by Graham Allison, who wrote this book a bunch of years ago called The Thucydides Trap, and essentially saying, you know, the legacy of, of rising powers uh, and, and embedded entrenched legacy powers is that they fight, right? That's just like power dictates that power doesn't like equal rivals. And so that there is a kind of a structural near inevitability of a conflict, maybe armed, maybe not, between the United States and China, as there would be for any two global behemoths confronting one another. Um, and so part of the realist and pragmatic argument is China is becoming a powerful country that could rival the United States economically and militarily and extend that influence globally. And with a, a domestic system and a view of, let's say, the rule of law versus the rule of the party um, th that could undermine everything from contract law to how we engage the world economically to kind of a mercantile, we'll, we'll seize resources and, and keep them from you. Another thing, by the way, that Russia is actually doing, right, using food as a weapon, um, that China could theoretically grab all the cobalt in the Congo. Uh, so, you know, again, Russia's doing it, China could do it. Uh, 
So I have two responses to the China's a threat because it's a threat for, for all the security and, and rising reasons. One is always examine your own presumptions where they're coming from. Uh, the United States has a national security bureaucracy that is almost entirely a creation of the post-1945 period. So every single institution that is responsible for the, uh, the military and or physical security of the United States, except for its borders, which is a different part of the government and is a little later, um, is a product of a, a set of institutions that, that developed in the face of a perceived and or real threat of the Soviet Union, a large state-centered military power that, that was threatening you know, the, the, the world order militarily and then in, in nuclear terms. So the CIA, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, all the various intelligence agencies, a lot of the contemporary State Department owe their framework to, were set up to fight a state it has an adversarial ideology and a potentially lethal military, um, which made like Islamic fundamentalism post 2001 a really unpleasant, uneasy fit for that bureaucracy, meaning it wasn't really set up to fight an ideology that was decentralized and not primarily a function of states and armies. China is really well cast for that role. And if you look back into the 1990s, you will find there was a degree of what do we do now, right? You had this whole bureaucracy that was set up to contest a powerful state with a contrary ideology. Um, and then that state evaporates in 1989 through 1991. So what do we do now? I think China is really well cast as the successor to what do we do now, particularly when you have institutions that are set up to look for threats. I'm, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some institutions set up to look for threats, like every state and every society, all of us should be threat mindful, whether that's you know economic or otherwise. Because of the economic intertwinement with China, I think that what the national security folks chronically underestimate is the kind of mutually assured economic destruction. And when I say economic destruction, I don't mean like our portfolios going down. <laughs> I don't mean like interest rates going up. I mean a kind of uh, economic systemic destruction because at, at the present, there is no way to fight a war with China or even fight a cold war with China in the framework of that economic intertwinement. And lots of people say, oh, you know, Trump's tariffs, all these countries have set up shop and are moving their factories out of China. You know, Apple announces they're going to shift some of their production away from Foxconn, or someone sets up, sets up a factory in Malaysia, and someone else sets up a factory in Egypt, and we set up factories in Mexico. All true. People are diversifying their supply chains. And I am sure, given the trajectory of things, that 10 years from now, uh, there will be proportionally less intertwinement than there is today. Even then, you know, I mean, these, these supply chains, these, these systems of production uh, took 20 years and trillions of dollars. No one can count exactly how many tens of trillions of dollars to create. Could you recreate that overnight? Could you sort of decide, okay, we're, we're right. China's an existential threat. It's a military threat. It's an ideological threat. Uh, and we have to detach from China economically as quickly as possible 
so that we can contest them military and ideologically as effectively as possible. It's a legitimate statement. The problem is unless you detach, it, it, I think a lot of the realists and the, the Colbys and the others of the world are basically acting as if you could fight a nuclear war, right? And what I mean by that is that the level of destruction, systemic destruction that would entail in detaching from China, you know, makes whatever going on with Russia like a non-thing. I mean, you know, our trade with China, with Russia, I mean, the food thing's a big deal for the world, but it's not a big deal for a lot of the West. The energy is, you know, it's a big deal, but it's replaceable. There's a lot about what goes on between China and the United States. It's not immediately replaceable. And you can't say, I mean, what populace in the world, unless China dropped a nuclear weapon on San Francisco, is going to go, yeah, we'll deal with five years of economic systemic collapse. You know, portfolios wiped out, banking systems insolvent, nationalization. I don't know what. You, you tell me who's planning for that contingency. I mean, if Trump had gotten up and said, you know what, China's, uh, we got, we have to break away from China as quickly as possible. We're going to do a national economic policy. I'm going to join with Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown, and we're going to do a $10 trillion uh, uh, warp speed Manhattan project, reshore all of our manufacturing, build factories and employ, you know, millions of people and, and create the, the uh, economic infrastructure that we've outsourced around the world. I mean, that would have been really interesting. It might, it might even have been supportable, but it sure as hell what, what, not what anyone was saying. Do you think, um, I, A, I appreciate how quickly you're able to articulate like, what the coalition and rhetoric would look like on that type of project. The fact that there isn't something direct, even directionally occurring around that lines, does that convince you that folks don't believe what they're articulation suggests they should believe? Because I'm like fascinated by this category of thing. This isn't just like a China issue of like, if what you believe, what you're saying is true, you should be taking your actions to a ne- to the next level. And it seems to be within your dynamic that is occurring here. So I'm curious how you think about wh- why didn't, and let's, let's separate, for example, like Trump so think, being Trump, think- right? Because like, there's nothing we could do there. But to the broader project, what do you think is happening? I think part of it, you know, I went back to the history of how these institutions created economic policymaking and economies have existed in almost a completely different universe of action with different experts, different sensibilities than military strategy and foreign policy, Um, much to our detriment. I mean, yes, those converged a little bit during the Cold War. We used foreign aid as a tool, right? That was part of one of the toolkits of the Cold War. But in general, they're, 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 they're very different realms, right? So a little bit under Obama, a little bit under Trump, a little bit under Biden, there's been more seats at the table for like the National Economic Council to have someone sitting in the situation room. I mean, it's it's little things like that or getting the right clearances to be at the meeting. So at least someone can say, uh, you know, hey, wait a minute, if we do that, have you thought about the fact that uh, we won't have any semiconductors for three years and that's going to be a problem. <laughs> it's going to be a problem for our military equipment. Like, where are we going to get the semis? We haven't stockpiled semis. Maybe we should stockpile semis and then we can fight a war. So I think part of it is like you don't have the right coalition, you know, assemblage of of expertise. Maybe I know that's in foul. That word is not in in good favor between health stakeholders, right? Like this is your point. That's that's the word. Yeah. Um, And I really think a lot of foreign policy people uh, so vastly underestimate the the economic engagement. You know, it's like. I don't know. It's it, it, it's like a Siamese twin saying, "Oh, we can cut off that guy's arm. No big deal." <laughs> I I think they really don't appreciate 
the level of intertwinement. Now, you could say, I told you so, we should never have done this. But that doesn't solve your contemporary problem is we didn't listen to that and we did. I don't agree with that, by the way. I think there's a lot to be said for um, economic convergence as a stabilizing factor in the world. And then somehow everybody pulls out pre-1914 Europe as a, wait a minute, they were all, you know, they were cousins and they were trading with each other and everyone thought war was impossible. Um, if World War One is your, is, your, is your null case, uh, that too should be like, that didn't go so well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the, the, the invocation of it should be a, a clear and present reminder of just how disastrous that kind of conflict could be. Um, and you, you, know, you, you better be sure that's a war you need to fight and, and, and are willing to fight and have prepared people to, at least in Europe in 1914, you know, they've been building up armies for five years. They were all armed to the teeth. They, they were prepared for war with each other. They thought it wouldn't happen, but they were prepared. I guess we're a little bit prepared, but we're not prepared for any of the consequences. And I think this is where the realist camp, or the, you know, called pragmatic or realist, the national security establishment, the foreign policy establishment, really doesn't get the economic um, uh, we, vulnerabilities. And if they get it, they don't, they don't privilege it nearly enough. I think they really believe that somehow we could work that out if push mm-hmm. came to shove. You know, and it'd be kind of like a really bad version of, of what's going on with Russia. And we'd come together, we would, we'd suffer some economic hits, and somehow, I don't know, we'd work it out. Well, there's one thing uh, I'll add, right, which, which I think explains where you depart from them. What they would say, you know, having spoken to a decent number of them, is, oh, no, trust me, Zachary, we're calculating it in. This conflict is inevitable, though, so you're presenting a fake choice. So, so their argument would essentially be all the economic pain you're just describing, and this is why the this is why I bring up Graham Allison. Like, it is inevitably going to happen no matter what because we've entered, we've economically intertwined ourselves with a ambitious rising power that represents an existential threat to us. So, it seems to me the key thing that you have to argue then to you know keep playing different people in this debate then would be conflict is not inevitable. Essentially, that, that seems to be where the divergence would be. Well, I would say two things. If you believe conflict's inevitable, then back to your point, Marshall, which you made just now, um, you are utterly failing in constructing a policy that actually makes that conflict survivable. I, I mean, I fully, I fully would admit it may not be survivable by China either, but um, unless you were to do that kind of $10 trillion domestic, we're gonna, we're gonna reshore all of our industry, uh, then you haven't taken it seriously. You've, you've, you've rhetorically nodded in the direction of taking it seriously, but you haven't because if your goal as security officials is to protect the security of the United States and you head down a pathway that could destroy the security of the United States by destroying its economy, uh, you have failed in your design of a policy meant to secure the United States. So, unless somebody like that comes and says, okay, conflict's inevitable and here's what we need to do, then I think what you're doing is you're heading down a a really destructive, really, really dangerous pathway. The other thing is whether conflict is inevitable. And and this, I guess, gets to more of a legitimate philosophical question of what what exactly, what do we mean by conflict? 
you know, w- there's clearly enough convergence and has been and continues to be with China such that we are able to make, you know, hundreds of billions or more like a trillion dollars plus $2 trillion of products a year there that we then design that all a lot of the IP concerns that were legit, um, a lot of those have faded as China has become a more domestic, robust market for its own companies. They've gotten better protecting IP. There's a reason you don't hear about IP issues the way you did four years ago, because a lot of those kind of organically resolved just like they did when the United States was rampantly stealing English IP in the 1880s. You know, the minute we developed our own domestic industries, we started getting a little more concerned about protecting the profits from IP. Um, and for all this tech stuff, right? It, it's only it's only good for four years anyway, or three, whatever the the innovation cycle is. You can't really rest on old IP in tech land because you have to invent the next wave of stuff, which requires your own R and D and your own internals. It's you can't really steal your way to greatness, you know. And, and China's certainly discovering some of its liabilities are. You can't make a lot of this shit. Sorry, I mean, you can't make a lot of this stuff. It's okay. It's um, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. Stakes are high. <laughs> um, and I think there too, the the Thucydides one is like if you really believe, and I think people need to be pushed on this, right? If you believe that military conflict or military brinksmanship is inevitable, then you sort of honestly have to ask people who believe that. Okay, why aren't we doing a preemptive strike then? Right? Why? I mean. It, if, if it's not a moral question, if it's a pragmatic question of they're an existential threat, why aren't we, you know, doing to China what, what Israel wants to do to Iran, which is doing whatever we can, all bets are off. And that too leads to the, you can't, you can't play both tracks simultaneously. I had, a, I had an argument once with Steve Daines, who's a junior senator from Montana, who was sort of touting that he had um, as governor and, and then as a senator, helped open up China markets for Montana agricultural and uh, commodity exports on the same. And he was making this argument on the same day that uh, he put a resolution in the the Senate to condemn the Chinese Communist Party for 100 years of human rights and other violence. And I said, well, at at some point, one of those things has to give way to the other. Right. You cannot Mm -hmm. constantly play both sides of that particular coin. You, you can't condemn someone as uh, an existential enemy on the one hand and try to sell them more stuff on the other or, or make more stuff there. Um, the, the two are not compatible. Whoa, you just got to the, and I think you, I think you just, sorry to interrupt, you just helpfully got to the impasse we're at, which was the way you reconciled that was liberal democracy is inevitable. So if it's 2005, you could say, look, we're selling all these goods. We're recognizing the CCP is a human rights violator, but the process by which we sell these goods and engage will actually make them more democratic, make them much more reasonable. Now that that hasn't worked, we actually just generally are in this like really awkward stage where the deus ex machina ideological ideas have clearly failed from either direction. Like you could say that you know engagement has failed. You could also say from the other direction, like, disengagement doesn't seem to be a particularly sustainable policy. So where does this, where does this leave us basically? How do you, how do you think about that? So I think it was always a mistake to the, the liberal democratic uh, fantasy was always a mistake. Obviously it wasn't a fantasy when you didn't know the outcome, the liberal democratic gamble was always a mistake. Like you should never, 
the point of opening up to China economically is it made good sense for us and it made good sense for them. Um, and you could make some argument that the more stable societies are economically, uh, the, the more stable the world is and the more connected the world is economically, the, the, the kind of the better for all of us. Now, that's in huge disfavor as a question, like globalization as an idea is clearly we're having the backlash against globalization, although a lot of that's ideological. It's not necessarily structural, right? There's not a lot of actual deglobalization. There's a halt in the pace of global economic integration, but there's not a massive, you know, there's a lot of talk of it reversing. There's not a lot of evidence of it reversing. Uh, so I don't think that, I don't think the point should have been, we will, we will do this as a tool to change their system. Um, there were lots of other reasons to do it in that, you know, we've always looked for lower cost producers of higher cost goods, whether it was textile mills moving from, you know, uh, Lawrenceville, Massachusetts to South Carolina, and then from South Carolina to somewhere else, and then from somewhere else to China, uh, to Mexico, and then from Mexico to China. And obviously China needed foreign investment and it needed uh, something other than a completely failed economic ideology even if it maintained its uh, governing political ideology. You know, the, the equation in China has basically been, um, you can get rich, but you, you can't, unless you're uh, in the party and, and obeying the, the party's rules and procedures, you don't get to opine about the shape of the government or the governing system. And look, we don't like that, but back to what I said earlier, I don't think disliking a country's internal political system is in any way, shape, or form uh, the basis for treating said society as a threat. You know, the China China's internal system does not need to be presented as a, as a threat to our way of life. Right? I have yet to see how it is that what the Chinese Communist Party does in Beijing or Shenzhen or Chongqing or Hong Kong or Shenzhen or Shanghai actually implicates uh, you know, abortion rights in the United States or my right to enter into a free contract with somebody or my ability to get a mortgage or- Well, I mean, you know, an obvious example would be the you know, hotel employee who got fired um, because uh, he tweeted something negative about the CCP. And that's, a, that's an example of your ability to get into a contract or another if, with an employer. Yeah, and like an NBA vice president got demoted because he imperiled the NBA franchise's business by speaking up. But I'm, th- I don't, are you saying those, those aren't are, existential? Is I'm that what it comes down to? I am saying those are not existential. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that threaten a lot of us at a daily level, episodically, some of which is completely unfair. That that doesn't rise to the level of an existential threat. Um, so and I, I guess I, you're I, in, I, and within your arc to steel man your your point for a second. You know, there are ways that we can deal with U.S. employment law that don't necessitate a Cold War too with, with China at a very, because I, I was thinking those are the two obvious examples, but that, that, that would actually be an example of, you don't have to dismiss the seriousness of those issues. You can just say like, okay, like how exactly would, I mean, yeah, I guess you could maybe use weird export controls to ban the MBA from, you know, trying to have an economic relationship with China, but A, like it's been three years since it happened. It's not going to happen if it ever was going to happen. Therefore, why is it still legal within a? Yeah, actually, that's actually, yeah, that's like, you know, just trying to think out loud about that one. Um, Because I think think it goes to your point about it's slightly revealing that 
you and I could have had some version of this conversation in 2019. Uh, and that's, I don't know. And I want to take a step back and speak to more of your writing on American history. Um, it feels like we just keep having across every single policy area conversations that could have occurred in 1998, 2009, or even like 2014. You kind of shift the cards around a bit, but how do you just think about the phenomenon as like a historian? Um, it's, it's exhausting from my perspective as an interviewer, but how do you think about it as you're thinking about these big narratives? I mean, one, uh, and we touched on this a little last year when we talked about, you know, finance and capital and the nature of capitalism. Um, so th- the most optimistic way to look at our present moment is that we are in a prolonged cycle of kind of cultural confusion, despair, losing our way that you can look back over the past hundreds of years and find chunks of time where where that was also true that lasted 10 years seven years 15 years uh, i i wonder exactly how long we would we would say that our kind of cultural wandering in the wilderness you know a lack of either a sense of us or a lack of a sense of the future being potentially a, a better future that we're creating exactly how long that's been in place. I, I think in a lot of ways, we're, we're going on like year 2021 of that. You know, if you really look at October of 2020, when it wasn't just that the, the, the internet financial bubble burst, it was a certain kind of overweening cultural euphoria that everything was going to be bright into the 21st century and, and between economics and the end of history and you know, technology being a, a unifying force that also unlocked all the answers to health, disease, wealth, you name it. So I think a lot of ways we're in a pretty prolonged negative groove, which has had a series of external events that even in and of themselves would have been a shock to the system between the hanging chat election of 2000, between the 9-11, U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, that going particularly badly, uh, the the bursting of the housing bubble, which wasn't really the issue, it was the derivatives that, that underwrote the housing bubble. We've had housing bubbles that have nearly sunk the economy. The kind of after effects of 2008, 2009, the the, the rise of a kind of a particular type of Republican Party, which you know, begins with Gingrich, but really, really its current iteration is much more to the Tea Party and the reaction against 2009, uh, you know, the rise of Trump and, you know, whether you love him or hate him, that being a, a highly divisive phenomenon that speaks to a highly divided society. It's, you know, he didn't create that division. So the question is, when you're in these negative funks, everything looks negative, you know, (laughs) when you're in these cultural moments of despair, you kind of look out at the world in despair. And at other moments you looked out at the world through like rosy tinted glasses, you know, we're all going to be driving atomic powered cars in the 1950s and the world was going to be a liberal democratic haven. They're both, they both tend to be wrong, right? Or they both tend to be partly right and therefore wrong as a complete statement. So I think about some of what we go through in the present and the little bit of the Groundhog Day that you referred to, we could have been having these conversations, as endemic of our moment. What I don't know and what no one else knows, although it's fascinating how many people seem to think they do know, 
is where this goes. Um, the certainty with which people talk about the future, well, I, I don't think will ever cease to astonish me in that one of the only things I know about the future is that I don't know what the future is going to hold. Uh, it seems one of the only axioms. I mean, I know that I'm going to die. At least I think I think I'm going to die. Um, you know, even that with all the scientific whatever, I guess, has a slight question mark to it. I'm not saying that hopefully or not. I'm just saying, I guess it's possible that I don't even know that. And that should be honored, right? And that I also know that we're responsible for that future. Uh, it's not ordained. And so part of what my China argument is, anyone who makes an inevitability argument has, has already gone two steps down the road to that inevitability becoming true. Because it's the, it's the walking of it as much as, and the talking of it as much as anything else that helps bring it about. Yes, there are fears and there are threats that are not a product of how we see things. A, a bullet heading toward me is not a um, philosophical question whereby if I simply describe the bullet in different terms, you know, if I just describe the bullet in terms of Zeno's paradox, it will go halfway to its target and thereby never fully reach it. And therefore I, I'm fine, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, but there is a lot that we don't know. Uh, and there's a lot that we are in individually and collectively able, are in control of in, in ensuring that our fears are not the things that become true. Uh, look, these are easy conversations have their hard realities to live. But I mean, I, I, was that an answer to your kind of, how do I, how do I no, no, address of these things? No, no, it, it was just because, and look, you see this through 15 different issues, whether it's, you know, abortion rights or, you know, gun legislation. I think the probably difficult task for people right now is just girding themselves to the fact that this is probably just not your moment of breakthrough on basically, basically anything. And right. I think what particularly sucks about that and what I don't have a moral answer to this, this is more just like a, a long form podcast answer is the moral issues are incredibly real. That doesn't mean you could actually do a breakthrough. Um, like, like we had the, we had a conversation about gun control last week, which a lot of people were very pissed off at us for, because the basic conclusion was like, look, I, I you do the math. Um, there's no NRA conspiracy, like Republican politicians are actually reflecting the viewpoints of their voters. If you did have a Republican politician who did think differently on this issue, they'd be quickly primaried. Um, you'd have someone take their place, not because money's being exchanged under the table, but because actually sometimes in our country's history, there are 50-50 questions. Um, and this is one of them. Um, so basically the stakes of a lot of these issues doesn't match our ability to confront those issues. And that uh, I think that's very tough for folks to hear especially if they don't spend their time in the spaces we do, which is like, you become slightly deadened to that fact, right? So we just we just had a conversation about nuclear war and I'm saying, yeah, you know, that's that. Um, I, I think if you're just, I don't know how this has been for you for my last question, but I've been shocked at how many of my non-foreign policy friends who like oftentimes like work in the Senate, work in positions of responsibility, um, have been waking up afraid that there's going to be nuclear bombs falling. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Of, and, but 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 they feel that way because they haven't been deadened to the issue in a way that makes it easy to really navigate. So I I, th I think I kind of get how they feel um, in other areas. And it's funny the um, some of what I think we we don't do well dealing with has to do with sort of false stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. So mm -hmm. 
you know, gun control is a, a perfect example of this in that in, in my view, like all these discussions should start from an awareness of the United States is and always has been an atypically violent society. Mm-hmm. That was true when Europeans came in the early 19th century. It was true in the 18th century with, you know, you think about Hamilton and Burr, like they died in a duel, but they were hardly the only ones dueling, even though dueling was illegal. It's Andrew like, Jackson had plenty of duels, you know? <laughs> um, and yes, that was true among some French and, and English aristocracy as well. We didn't invent the concept, you know, the Italians and the, the, the Renaissance period. But in general, the United States is a violent society and has been. Um, and I, I think that's something that we, you know, liberals, I think, have view a period of time where that wasn't the case, which is a false narrative of the past. Uh, conservatives don't acknowledge that reality because it undermines a kind of American exceptionalism that says- It's the wrong exceptionalism. <laughs> right. Uh, and so on both sides, it's like we fail to acknowledge this aspect. And I don't mean acknowledge it and therefore go, oh, well, you know, whatever. We're a violent society. So, eh. but I think if you don't recognize that, right, if you don't kind of recognize who you are, any prescriptions about what you should do are likely to fail. Um, you know, it's it, like Australia and all these other places that took Thank guns you. didn't solve their problem because they took guns their problem was never fundamentally the same as our problem. It was neither the proliferation of guns nor the restriction thereof. It was, for the most part, that's not how they acted out, you know, and, and, and don't. Um, you know, Germany's got a lot of guns. You know, they have a lot of licensing because basically you wake up in the morning, you need a license in Germany. It's a dig. Germany had a whole other problem from an exceptionalism problem that needed to be solved. But like right. that just goes to your point, right? Germany had to reconcile its position in Central Europe relating to a bunch of other complicated things. But I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, so, I'm so happy we could close there just because what I, and I'm just speaking to, to listeners here, like what you just said about, I didn't have the language around America's uniquely violent history, but just from an analytical perspective, you cannot start with Morally, you can start with, you could say morally, it's a failing that we, unlike the UK after their school shooting in the 1990s or, or, or Canada with Justin Trudeau last week or Australia or New Zealand after Christchurch, you could say it's morally a failure that we can't do that. But you basically should take few, if any, tactical or strategic lessons from those responses. Because like, once again, Sagar said this last week, We've had 10 years. It's been almost 10 years since Parkland. And in all of the cases of these Anglo, you know, Anglo countries, it took one incident and they did something. If there have been 10 incidents and it's been 10 years, there's a different analytical model what's going on here. And you should get at the level of uniquely violent country. And, and look, I live in I, yeah. I live in New York City and, and New York City has unbelievably stringent gun laws. It also has a lot of shootings. I mean, like that, that should tell you something about the nature of our societies. Now, what you do about that is a whole other series of debates. You know, a lot of people say, well, just lock everybody up. And, you know, then you lock a lot of people up and then you have an incarceral state, which is also a morally highly questionable way of dealing with arrestive citizenry, right? But I do think you need to start with an awareness of who you are. And, and one of the things that depresses me, even as I, you know, I started this thing called the Progress Network, I think in terms of the future being what we should construct out of our hopes and not of our fears and that 
I'm, you know, I dedicate a good bit of my time and energies to trying to inject that note as I do in these conversations, you know, as partisan as they might be to try to be, um, above board about engaging difficult and difference, um, is the kind of like uh, fictions we tell ourselves about who we've been, uh, that really don't serve who we want to be. That's a you know great place to leave it. We started with China, but I think we went to a very meta-political, meta-cultural direction, which I think is going to basically be in the background of every conversation we have. So glad we can leave it there. Um, Zachary, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Um, the book is available in our bookshop. It's, um, man, sorry, I'm blanking after I'm blanking after an hour. Um, Inside what, money. Inside money. Yeah, I have it written down here. Inside money. You've also written a bunch of other books. Um, not Including all. one on China twelve years ago about the convergence of China Could, and the United is that the, States. Is that book still? I was going to wonder. Is that book still useful to read? You know, it's interesting. It, it is clearly dated because it speaks to a different time, but its conclusions are no different than the ones I that we talked about at the beginning, which is uh, the United States security would be better served by attending to our own house, our own economic and military security, uh, worrying less about what they do domestically and a little less about what they do potentially internationally. Uh, and respecting the intertwinement as a stabilizing force that we should uh, respect and not ignore. So that part is very relevant, even though a lot of the I think the specifics, the, the ship is in a very different place than it was when I wrote it in 2009. To your point, the section on IP theft is, is not going to be useful. Uh, right. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Mark. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.